Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and go with me to Mark chapter number 9 this morning. Mark chapter number 9. And if you're willing and able, stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter number 9 this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you. Maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you'll find a copy of God's Word. We would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us. Mark chapter 9. And we're going to read verse number 1 all the way down to verse number 10. Mark chapter 9, verse 1, all the way down to verse number 10. Before we read that, let me ask you, do you, do you remember when you were in high school or elementary school? So for some of you, that's a long way back, I understand. Remember when you were in school and you used to take a field trip while you were in school? You remember any particular field trip in specifically, right? I remember our, our, our teacher would say, okay, kids, we're going to go on a, we're going to go on a field trip today. Oh, wow, great, a field trip. To me, a field trip meant that I did not have to sit in the classroom. So that was a fun trip. That's what I thought it was. And the teacher would say this. She'd say, but we're still, even we're doing a field trip, we're still going to be learning about whatever subject, right? So if it was history and we were going to some museum or if it was science and we were going out into the field, right? And the teacher would give us three things as we would go. The field trip, while you're here, you're supposed to look, you're supposed to pay attention, you're supposed to listen, What's being said by the, you know, by the, maybe the, the director at the museum or, or the person at the field? You're supposed to learn. You're supposed to look. You're supposed to listen. And you're supposed to learn. And then they would give us this little piece of paper or notebook. And we were supposed to take notes of all the things that we were looking at and, and listening to and learning while we were on the, the field trip. I was never a good field tripper that way. At the end, I always needed my friend's notes in order to remind uh, myself what I had looked at, what I had listened to, or what I had learned. What's happening in Mark chapter number 9 is a theological field trip. And Jesus is taking three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he's taking them up mountain. And he's going to show them something. He's going to reveal something to them. And what he wants for them and what he wants for us is to look. It's, it's to listen. And it's to learn. Look, listen, learn. Okay, so here we are, Mark 9. Look with me in verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, and he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and he leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. Notice this. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment 
became shining and exceeding white as snow. So as no fuller, someone who deals with garments, so as, as no fuller on earth can white them, and no one can make them as white, no one can make the clothes as white as Jesus' clothes were. That's what Mark is saying. And there appeared unto them Elias, or Elijah, with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and he said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he wist not, that, that word is no, for, for he knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice that came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word in our lives. Father, teach us about yourself from this passage this morning. Father, give us clarity of thought. Set a watch before my lips, and may I say only the things in line with your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Notice the verse begins, and he leadeth them up into a mountain apart by themselves. Just a casual note this morning. Jesus made, a, made it a habit to withdraw to lonely places, solitary places, in order to pray, in order to be refreshed, in order to be encouraged from the Father. And by the way, you and I need those kind of seasons in our life as well. We need places where we get a, away from everyone, we get a, apart from everyone, we get away from all the distractions so that we can talk to the Lord in prayer. We can be filled with the Spirit. We can know the love of God so that we can encourage the people of God. And that's specifically what he does here. He withdraws, he departs to this solitary place in order that he might provide encouragement, wisdom, insight to the three, Peter, James, and John. The Bible speaks of the followers of Jesus in all kinds of numbers. There's 120, and then there is 70, and then there's the 12 who are the disciples, the apostles. And then there are three. Three, Peter, James, and John. And he takes them, if you will, on this theological field trip. And he wants them to do what my teacher in school wanted me to do. He wants them to look. Pay attention to what you're seeing. He wants them to listen. To listen to what God has to say. And he wants them to learn. 
Learn from what you see. Learn from what's being revealed. Look, listen, and learn. Now, we only have time to cover two of these this morning, so we'll take the first two. Let's look. And what exactly are they to look at? What are they to be looking for? What are they to, what are they to be paying attention to? That's the idea. Notice, look, his glory is revealed. Look, his glory is revealed. You're seen in verse number two. He takes them up the mountain. He, he wants them to look. He wants them to pay attention. Notice the end of the verse. And he, that's Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured before them. He is transfigured before this. What this means is that for a brief moment while he is on this earth, Jesus' true identity is allowed to, to shine forth. So it's for a brief moment while Jesus is on this earth, Jesus' true identity is allowed to shine forth. He is transfigured before them. So if you're taking notes, you got letter A here. It means this. Jesus' divinity is revealed. His divinity is revealed. Now you need to remember that there's been 600 years since the glory of God had been revealed to the people of the Lord. And now, here on this mountain, they are seeing the glory of God. They're seeing the power of God, the might of God. God is revealing himself to them. And just where is the glory of God? How is the glory of God known? It's known in this humble Galilean peasant carpenter. It's known in the person of Jesus. It's known of this one who was born of, of, of a teenage girl in a town of a couple dozen people in, in, in the middle of obscurity. The, the glory of God is revealed. God's glory is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way. Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness because God was manifest in the flesh. That word manifest means known or revealed or displayed. God is revealed. He's displayed. How? God is revealed and displayed in the flesh. God was robed in human flesh. Now I want to show you this. It's very important for you to understand this point. Go to Philippians in chapter number 2. So walk forward in your Bible toward the back and you're going to find the letter to the church at Philippi. Philippians in chapter number 2. And look with me. Philippians chapter 2. Are you getting there? Philippians chapter 2. Look with me at verse 8. Let's back up a little bit. Go to verse, go to verse 6. Philippians 2, 6. Look at it. I need you to see the Bible. Philippians 2, 6. So this is speaking of Jesus. So Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, 
He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and hath given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you hear what he's saying? That Jesus, his deity, his, 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 his divinity was concealed under the veil of humanity. That Jesus, as God, concealed his godness with humanity. Isaiah 53 says he had no form of comeliness. Which means that in him there was no beauty. There, there was nothing about Jesus while he was on this earth that would have attracted you to him. You wouldn't have looked at him and thought, oh wow, that is definitely God. That was not there. The Bible says he is despised. The Bible says he was not esteemed by people. He, he, he would walk down the street and people didn't say anything. He, he was lost in the crowd there was nothing about Jesus in his physical life, in his flesh, in his humanity that would, have, that would have caused you to say, oh, that's definitely God in the flesh. No, you would have asked, which one of these is Jesus? Which one of these is Jesus of Nazareth? So unless he was teaching or doing a miracle, you would never have expected that he was God. And yet, he was God in the middle of the Jerusalem market. That was God in the flesh. That was divinity. That was God having humbled himself and took on flesh for us. They need to hear this. Jesus is and was eternal God. Jesus is and was eternal God. Now that message of Christianity separates Christianity from almost every other religion in the world. Mormonism doesn't teach that. Jehovah's Witnesses don't teach that. They don't believe that Jesus was and is eternal God. Islam doesn't teach that. They teach he was a prophet, he was a good man, he became God maybe, but they do not teach that he was and is eternal God. Only the message of the Bible teaches that. Jesus was and is eternal God. He lives without beginning, without end. He lives as creator God. He lives in perfect communion with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and he is God the Son. And they live together, work together, operate together as one God. And that is what's being revealed on this mountain. What's being revealed on the mountain is his divinity, his deity. He became what he was not, namely a man, without ever ceasing to be what he was, namely God. He became what he was not, namely a man, without ever ceasing to be what he was, God. And here, in this moment, in Mark chapter number 9, 
you're getting just, just for a moment, this, this temporary exhibition. The, these three individuals, Peter, James, and John, they're getting a sneak preview of that which will be known after the resurrection, of what will finally come as history wraps itself up and we live in it with a new heaven and a new earth. Now you need to remember this, they're, they're hearing this, they're, they're seeing this after they just heard about the cross. You have to take yourself back almost three weeks ago now to our study in Mark chapter number 8 where Jesus told them that he was the Messiah, he was Christ and Peter affirmed it. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God and God says, Jesus says to Peter, it, it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you but my father which is in heaven revealed this to you Peter. And, 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 and there are many things that the Son of Man must suffer. And he's told them about the cross. He's told them about self-denial. He's told them about tribulation. He's told them about suffering. And he's told them that they must submit themselves to this as well. So Jesus has been teaching them about his weakness. About how he will come, he will die, and he will be resurrected again. And now, here for just a few brief moments, Jesus is showing them not his weakness in humanity. He is showing them the power that he has in his divinity. He said, this is my weakness in humanity. And now on this mountain, he's pulling the curtain back and he's saying, look at the power I have in my divinity. Let me just make an application here. Let's take comfort in the thought that there are good things that are laid up in store for true Christians. Right now, in your life and in my life, it's the season of carrying the cross. It's the season of entering into our Savior's humiliation. But the crown and the kingdom and the glory are all things yet to come. And the people of Christ right now are like David in the cave of Adullam. They are despised. They're lightly esteemed in the world. But listen, friend, the hour comes and it will, it will be here very soon where Christ will take to himself all the great power that is rightly his and he will put every enemy under his feet. And the glory in Mark chapter 9 that's seen for just a few brief moments will be witnessed by all the world. That is, what, that is what Paul is saying in the book of Philippians. That Christ in his power, Christ in his glory, Christ in his might, he will be seen by all of the world. And when he is seen by all of the world at the end of time, Every tongue, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. All the world will know. He is God in the flesh. He's saying, look. Look, my glory is revealed. Jesus is God eternal. And he's revealed that to them on this mountain. Look, look at the verse. He's transfigured before them. Verse 3, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fool or no, no one who, who deals in garments on the earth could make them that white. 
All of that is it's, it's language to help you understand. All of that is language to help us understand. This is, this is not being done by human means. This is something that's being done by supernatural means. Why? Because Jesus is supernatural in this way. And notice this, the Bible says, verse 4, And there appeared unto him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking. So Moses and Elijah show up out of nowhere. Now, I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Maybe they were wearing name badges. Hi, my name is Elijah. So we, don't, we aren't told how they know this, but they, but they just know. And the significance, which we're going to see more in just a moment, but the significance here of Elijah and Moses. Moses, the lawgiver of the Old Testament. Elijah, the prophet of the Old Testament. And this is a way in which Jesus is revealing. I'm not coming to destroy the law. I'm not coming to destroy the prophets. I am not coming as a way of destroying them, putting them down, undoing them. I am coming in a way that I am fulfilling them. It helps us to see that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not set in opposition of one another. The Old and the New Testament are not set in opposition of one another. There are some in the church that would teach this, that you don't need the Old Testament anymore because now you have the New Testament. And Jesus says, no, this isn't the case. It's it's the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. So, so the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament. And, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. This is why after Jesus resurrects from the dead, you have the two disciples walking on the road of Emmaus, and they're sad, they're, they're, they're troubled by all the things that happened. And Jesus shows up and he walks with them all the way to Emmaus, and he teaches them what? He teaches them of all things concerning the law, that's Moses, and the prophets, that's Elijah. Jesus walks with them on the road, and he helps reveal to them that the old and the new work in conjunction to do what? To reveal him. That's what he's saying. And notice the verse in verse 4. There appeared to him Elijah and Moses. And notice, and they were talking with Jesus. And they were talking with Jesus. Now, Mark is silent on the nature of their conversation. But Dr. Luke helps us understand. In Luke chapter number 9, Luke says they spoke of his departure. They spoke of his departure. That's interesting, right? Because as soon as they have come, they're talking about leaving. That's That's a weird way to start the conversation. But the word here for departure is not leaving in the sense of I'm, I'm, I'm walking away. The word here for departure is actually the word exodus. So he, so he was talking about the way, he isn't talking about the way in which he's leaving the world. What he's talking about is he's talking about the fact of his death, that by the shedding of his blood, there would be another exodus. That, that, that by the shedding of his blood, there would be a way in which people through their faith in Jesus' crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection, that they would be set free from their sin. 
He's saying there's a, there's a way in which you'll be set free from your sin. What is the way that we are set free from our sin? The way we are set free from sin is through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through belief in Jesus and having believed in Jesus, what Jesus did, who Jesus was, what Jesus accomplished. Having believed in Jesus, you shall be saved, Paul says. How are you set free from your sin? You're wise enough, you're smart enough to know that you've sinned. How will you be set free from your sin? You see, there's all kinds of answers for that. Some people think, well, the way I'll be set free from my sin is through self-justification. I'll just be a better person than somebody else. And so people go through their whole lives just trying to find all the faults, all the failures, all the things that other people do that are wrong in order to feel good about themselves. Yeah, so I might have sin, sure, but I know somebody that's worse than me. I, 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 might, I might have done some things I shouldn't have done, but I know somebody who's done things worse than me. And so we walk through our lives trying to deal with our sin with self-justification. And here's the problem with that. If that's you this morning, you don't have a sense of freedom. What you have a sense of this morning, and you know this, is you have a sense of guilt. Because in your search to find somebody worse off than you, what you've also been made aware of is there's somebody better off than you. In trying to find people who do things worse than you, you've found people who do things better than you. And now you find yourself guilty because you don't do all the stuff that they do. What will you do with your sin? Some people try to self-justify it. Others, they try to find a, a, a freedom from their sin through self-righteousness, through religion. Well, if I help the poor, if I go to church, if I, if I give to the needy, if, if I do all these things, that, that, that'll, that'll somehow buy me favor with God. So that way I can show up to God and I can show God all the good stuff I've done. And they have this sense of self-righteousness. They always, think, they always think they're better than everybody around them. And here's the problem. That hasn't given you freedom. That's given you shame. So you're walking through this life with guilt because you're trying to self-justify or you're walking through this life with shame because you're trying to find enough self-righteousness in yourself that you can somehow find favor with God. But here's the thing, however much good you've done, you haven't undone all the bad things you've done. So it doesn't work, does it? It doesn't, doesn't give you freedom. It gives you shame. It gives you guilt. It gives you regret. That's what it gives you. So what will you do with your sin? Some try to self-justify. Some try to find self-righteousness. Neither of those are enough. But there's a third group too. And this is some of you this morning. There's a third group too. And that is you've simply just given yourself over to the indulgence of sin. You just live for the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You give yourself to every wicked passion, every wicked thought, every evil deed. And you say, hey, well, what's the use if you can't be a good enough person? And if I've tried to do better and I've tried to improve and I've tried to do right, but it just doesn't work because I always run back to the alcohol. I always run back to some addiction. I always run back to the pornography. I always go, I always say the thing I know I shouldn't say. So what's the use? I just... I'll just give up and I'm just going to just do what I want to do because that's the only thing that seems to make me happy. And what you've become is you become self-destructive. 
And you're ruining every relationship you have in pursuit of trying to find what? In pursuit of trying to find freedom. Because the only freedom in this life is found in Jesus Christ. You won't find freedom in religion. You won't find freedom in self-indulgence. You won't find freedom in moralism. You won't find freedom in any of those places. You will only find freedom in Christ. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. You see, only those who know Christ can stand and say, all have sinned, including this guy. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not as good as God, never be God, can't measure up to God. Oh, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, whoever believes in Jesus, shall have eternal life. And Jesus here speaking of his departure is saying, there's a way in which I will redeem a people to myself. Similar to the exodus of the Old Testament. There's a way in which I'll redeem a people to myself. How are we redeemed to Jesus? How do we become the people of God? How are we made into the image of the Son of God? It is this way. It is faith in Jesus Christ. And who Jesus is? And in what Jesus has done. And just what has Jesus done? He left heaven. He robed himself in human flesh. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He lived a perfect sinless life. Died an atoning death on the cross. But listen friend, don't miss this. And then he raised from the dead. And he did that to accomplish, to secure, to purchase for you and for me. Freedom from sin. Freedom. Look. Look. Look, his glory is revealed. This is what he's saying to the disciples. Peter, James, John, look, pay attention. Do you see what I'm doing? Do you see what I'm accomplishing? Do you see what I'm doing for you? And he says the same thing to you this morning. Look. Pay attention. Do you see what Christ has done for you? Do you see what Christ has done? Do you see the, do you see the way that he has made for you and for me to come into the presence of a holy and a righteous God, a, a God whose presence we could not even dare to enter into? We couldn't even think of coming close, and yet he doesn't just bring us close. He brings us all the way into his family. Do you see? You see what God has done for you? Look, pay attention. He doesn't just say this. He doesn't say look. He says second, listen. Remember, this is a field trip we're on. You got to look. You got to look. You got to pay attention. But you got to listen. You got to listen to what's being said. What's being said? Watch this. Verse 5. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he knew, he wist not, he knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid. Peter always gets it wrong. Peter is the guy who doesn't know what to say, but he's going to say something. 
How many of you are like that? You're going you're to say something because you've got to say something, right? And this is Peter. Peter doesn't know what to say. In fact, look at the verse. The Bible says they were afraid. Verse 6, they were so afraid. So Peter is the guy who's afraid. But listen, that doesn't stop him from saying something. He just speaks up. He just says something. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. He just says it. And so here's what he says. Watch this. Look at verse, look at verse 5. It is good for us to be here. Yeah, you think? You can see him on the mountain. Here's, here's Jesus. His glory is revealed. God in the flesh. They see it. Here's Elijah. Here's Moses. Wow. And Peter goes, Lord, I just, I have something I'd like to say. I think, I think, I think this is a good thing. Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> Like God was asking for his opinion. He says, let's build for these three tabernacles. And P Peter wants to make this, uh, this field trip a retreat center. That's what he wants to do. <laughs> let's build three tabernacles as if all three of you deserve the same thing. Let's build one for Elijah, one for Jesus, one for Moses. As if all three deserve worship, as if all three deserve honor. They don't. Peter's trying to indefinitely sustain a mountaintop experience. And by the way, we all have a proclivity to do this. We have some moment in our life where we have this amazing experience with God. And rather than simply enjoying the experience that we've had with God, and then saying, you know what, I'm moving forward in faith, on to the next. We, tr we try to go back and relive the past. We try to go back and relive all these other things that we used to have. We try to recreate these mountaintop moments as, as if there's some kind, of, some kind of idolatry that it becomes to us. What it reveals is it reveals that we have a, we have a short-sightedness about God's plan. Peter's trying to live back there. God wants to take Peter over here. Peter's trying to rekindle something back here. God wants to do some brand new thing in Peter up here. We all have the same tendency. I, I want you to see this, though, just, just quickly. I want you to see why Moses and Elijah are here. Moses is here because he reflected the glory of God. I don't have time to do it, but you can do it for homework this afternoon. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses goes up into Mount Sinai. God had met with his people in the book of Exodus on this mountain... God had given to Moses the law. And while God was given to Moses this law, Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. So God takes Moses, he hides him behind the rock, and God passes by Moses. And in, and in chapter 34 of the book of Exodus, and in verse number 25, it says, or verse number 29, it says that Moses comes down the mountain and he did not know, he wist not that his face shone. It, it, it was, it was clearly visible. Moses saw God and Moses reflected the glory of God to all the people around him. Moses reflected the glory of God. Watch this. There's a second thing, though, about Elijah. Elijah represented the glory of God. So you can read this for homework, too. It's 1 Kings chapter 18. The prophets of Baal are all gathered together and they're going to have a showdown. Who's a better God, Baal or the living God of the Bible? 
And so they get all the prophets of Baal together and they try to call fire down from heaven and it never happens. And Elijah shows up on Mount Carmel, a different mountain, not, not, not the Mount of Transfiguration, not, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Carmel. Elijah shows up on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings chapter 18. All the prophets of Baal are calling down fire, calling down fire. Elijah makes fun of them. Maybe your God is asleep. Maybe you should scream louder. They start to cut themselves trying to get the attention of their God who is no God at all. No fire. Elijah prays. Fire falls from heaven. And immediately then the prophet Elijah says, take the prophets of Baal out beyond the city and kill them. The people immediately do what the prophet has said. Why? Because the glory of God had manifested itself. And Elijah was a representation of that. Watch. Moses was a... Elijah was a representation of the glory of God. Second, Moses reflected the glory of God. But watch this. This is what's important for you and for me. Both of these men allowed the glory of God to be their story. Their story was his glory. What, what, what's, what, what, what was the power in their life? Not themselves. The power in their life was the glory of God. The power in their life was the glory of God. The outstanding characteristic of their lives, of their ministries, was the glory of God. And our lives are not meant to be lived in some kind of self-expression. Our lives are meant to be lived for the glory of God. Most people go through this life just trying to live for their own glory. Trying to live for their own fame. Trying to live for their own pleasure. But not the, not the Christian. The Christian is living his or her life. Not, not as simply a self-expression. But we're living our lives to the glory and the honor of God. So that what, whatever we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, we do all to the glory of God. Can that be, can, is, is that true of your life this week? That everything you did last week was for the glory and honor of God. Was that true of all the entertainments you enjoyed last week? Every entertainment, the glory of God. Is that true about the way you talk to your kids? Is that true about the way you talk to your husband or the way you talk to your wife? Is that true with the way you interacted with your coworkers? It's the glory of God. I'm not trying to live for myself. I'm trying to live for him. See, if we live for him, listen, if we live for him, we live in line with his word. If we're going to live for him, we have to live in line with his word. Living for the glory of God means being obedient to the word of God. Living for the glory of God means being obedient to the word of God. That's what he says. Look at the verse. This is it. We've got to get out of here. Look at verse 7. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and the voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. You know who you should listen to? You should listen to Jesus. That's who you should listen to. Don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to false teachers. Don't listen to, to, to false religion. Don't listen to half-truths. Don't listen to all your critics. Don't listen to the world. You know who you should listen to? You should listen 
to Jesus. It's the insistent word of God, which is good for all times and all people and all places. So just very practically, let me just make this very simple, just so you can make sure we are all, we are all understanding each other. When I say you should listen to Jesus, what I mean by that and what God means by that is that you should listen to the word of God. How does God speak to us? How, do, how does God direct us? He speaks to us through his word. So you should listen to the word of God. That's why we preach the Bible the way that we preach the Bible here at First Baptist Church. Because it's not simply the words of David. It's the word of God. It's the word of God that gives life. It's the word of God that provides strength. It's the word of God that gives wisdom and direction. It's the word of God. We should listen to the word of God. And so maybe for you this morning, maybe you know you haven't been spending as much time in the word of God as you need to. I'm going to challenge you. You ought to spend five minutes at the very beginning of your day. You ought to spend at least five minutes in God's word. Before you do anything else, you ought to spend five minutes in the word of God. Now, some of us could do much more than that. That's true. But some of us, this is a good place for us to start. Five minutes every day in the word of God before we do anything else. Before we do anything else. I'm going to spend time in the word of God. Let me give you this last thing. We've got to get out of here. On this one, here it goes. Notice this. Look at verse 9. They came down the mountain. He charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen. Watch, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. You say, well, pastor, if, if Jesus is God, like you said, then why did he die? Well, Jesus died for sin. That's why Jesus died. Jesus died for your sin. Jesus died for your sin so you wouldn't have to. But this is what he's teaching us in this verse. That although Jesus died for your sin and mine, Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus rose from the grave. And when Jesus rose from the grave, it verified. It verified that Jesus was, in fact, God. It, it verified that Jesus was, in fact, God. And I'm wondering this morning if you know why Jesus died. Do you know why Jesus died? Because he had to? Nope. Here's why Jesus died. Jesus died because he loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved that he gave his son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died on the cross because he loved you. And he's willing right now to save you from your sin if you would believe in him. He'll set you free from those self-destructive patterns in your life. 
He'll set you free from your need of self-justification. He'll set you free from your need of self-righteousness. He'll set you free if you will believe in him.